the beginning of the new paragraph. Hadas Hashlishis, the third opinion. <laughs> Essentially, what we were learning about last week was that uh, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzato is going through, for the sake of comparison, he's going through five false philosophies that caught hold uh, in different situations, in different periods of history, in different groups, groups of people, and that all of these five, all of these different philosophies are all concepts that run contrary to what we mean when we talk about the oneness of God, the uniqueness of God. If you recall, Rav Chaim Litzata says that the, uh, the greatest thing that man can realize is the fullest understanding of God's oneness. And obviously the question, it's simple, there's only one God, there's only one creator, there's only one sustainer to history, what are you making such a big spiel out of it for? And essentially what Ramesh Chaim Litzat is, is trying to develop over here is let's look at the world and let's look at various um, perspectives and philosophies that the world had of which we are even, to a certain degree, subscribed to parts of those concepts. We, we've subscribed to parts of those concepts and and one comes to realize that when we talk about God's oneness, in contrast to all of those philosophies, that God's oneness is not s- such a simple thing. And what we did last week is we discussed the first two. There's five. There's five principal ones, but we discussed the first two last week. And the two that we dealt with were number one, the Das Oivdei Avedezara, the belief of the ones that worshipped idols which we think is utter nonsense and utter stupidity, but essentially what it is, is the belief that God is too great to be intimately involved or directly involved with humanity, and therefore gave over everything to different forces, and therefore we have to worship the forces as the uh, cabinet members of God's kingdom, and God forbid that we don't want to worship God, but we have to go through these, these means, and we know, as Maimonides teaches us, that this became the beginning of idol worship, but this was one whole philo- one whole philosophy that, um, so to speak, God gave His world over to certain forces, and we have to go through those forces. Um, that was one philosophy. Then the second philosophy, okay, and then we got into a whole discussion about nature and and how much we believe nature is in control. And does God just work around nature? We got into a whole discussion about that. Then the second philosophy being that there is one God of good, but there is nothing that doesn't have its opposite in this world. And therefore, if there's a God of good, there has to be a God of evil as well. Uh, so if, there's, if there's some for- force in this world that personifies everything that's good, then there's a second force that personifies everything that is bad, and that everything could then be explained as depending on who's ruling in that day or in that person's life. And maybe when there's a tour, you know, when maybe when they get into a fight and nobody wins, so then you get a little good and a little bad. Or if they're both asleep, so you have a blah day, or something of that nature. But that was a second philosophy, and you know, we smirk and smile at that philosophy, but there were philosophers through the generations that believed in those kinds of things. And I pointed out last week, without trying to be facetious about it, that we also, to a certain degree, subscribe to that kind of a concept. Our willingness to only look at a God that gives good things 
and anything that's not good is automatically not from the God that I know, is in a certain sense, uh, without realizing it, at least emotionally, if not theologically, very similar to this kind of a concept. That's the Das Shani. That's the second false philosophy. Now, all of these false philosophies, we're not learning in order to learn false philosophies. What Rav Moshe Chaim is going to do is he's going to point to us, he's going to show us how the concept of God's oneness really eliminates all of these different possibilities. But he wants to first touch base with each one. And so far, now we're going into the third one. The Hadas Hashlishas and the third false philosophy, Hidas Hamein Ha'anoshim. That's a philosophy that the masses of people believe in, right? Which is also, he's going to tell us, is contrary to the concept of God's oneness. What is that? Shachoshvim, that they think, Shadivrei Ha'olam Hazeh, that everything in this world, Ha'olchim Lefichukas Tivam. Everything goes by the laws of nature. That God had has established in this lower world. And it's what man does to to channel or to harness the forces of nature that will ultimately make man successful. And it is their laziness that will harm them. And this is very consistent with the concept that my strength and my talent and my fortitude is what has amassed for me all of this wealth or all of this strength. And others say everything is in, in the stars and what happens essentially happens to everybody and everything is just nature. Lo yoser, there is nothing else. Im lahetiv, im lahareya, irrespective if the person is doing something good or bad. Now, let's explain this because he's jumbled two things, or that which seems to be two different philosophies together into one das, into one uh, one opinion. What is this das shlishis? Essentially, what this das shlishis works with one basic concept: that there are certain laws in nature. And now, depending upon how a person aligns himself with those different laws of nature and forces of nature and circumstances of nature, that's what's going to, that's what's going to create the, situ- the circumstances of the person's life. So, part of the philosophy would say the following. If, if I become a scientist and I understand how energy is created, I will then harness energy and then I will become successful when I sell the energy. If I'm, if I'm a lazy bones or if I, I'm laid back, so then I won't use that which is available to me in nature and I'll be on a welfare check. So essentially what this philosophy is saying is there's a world out there and Hashem established Certain, certain laws and forces and things which are available in terms of resources and depending upon how much of a hustler the person is or lack of hustler that the person is that's what, that's what makes the difference in what we gain in this world that's essentially what this philosophy says now there is in a certain sense the opposite of this philosophy which he speaks about in the last two lines 
that everything is just luck and no matter what I do, it depends on what star I was born to, which he also includes in this philosophy. Now, what is this philosophy? This philosophy says the following. Uh, if I was born in Gemini, or if I was born in Aries, or if I was born in this, this is what's going to happen in my life, and I can stand on my head, and it's not going to change. And I could be the biggest shamazel, and I'll be rich. And I could be the most astute and most clever businessman and be a pauper. It's all in the stars. Now, this seems to be the exact opposite of the philosophy of everything is if I'm a hustler or not. It is, but it isn't. It is opposite in the sense that, you know, you have a perfect excuse to do nothing. So it's opposite of the first philosophy. philosophy. But in a certain sense, there's a common denominator that the condition of man has nothing to do with good or bad. That's the, that's the point of the total philosophy. In other words, to assume that there is any real connection of reward and punishment to what the person does and things can happen to the person because of, because of virtue or, or out of a punishment for something that the person has done earlier, this is a lot of nonsense. There's a world there and it dictates. It either dictates because I challenge it to, to, and channel it to dictate to me or it's there and it dictates by itself because everything is in the stars. But I could be the biggest hooligan in the world and nature can or cannot uh, respond to what I need, or I could be the biggest tzaddik in the world, and it also won't make a difference. It all depends on either hustle-bustle or the stars, but it has nothing to do with justice whatsoever. There's a nature out there, a man is thrust into a world of nature, and by his being thrust into this world of nature, now it's either you believe in the philosophy of being a hustler and a manipulator and operator, or you believe in the philosophy that no matter what I do, it's, it's all in the stars. But to assume that there's any right and wrongs and that there's a, a, a process of reward and punishment, that's all out. And in that, these two things are common denominators. <coughs> now, in essence, if one analyzes this, and Lozado is going to analyze this, in essence, in essence this, is, um, this is a major statement in terms of God's total disinvolvement with man. Total disinvolvement with man. Now, we're going to see as we go on that what Ramesh Chaim Lutzat is going to stress is that when we believe in God's oneness, we believe in God's oneness in many different features. In the fact that He's a creator, in the fact that He's a sustainer of creation, and in the fact that He's in constant control of that which He created. And that third concept where we deal with the concept of control is where this is an exact, in exact contradiction. The notion that the world is created and man is set into it and then man either receives by virtue of hustling or receives because of the star that he was born to is, is a concept that totally disinvolves any connection between God, nature, and man. God's not in the formula, it's nature and man on one format or another, but it's only nature and man, and God has nothing to do with it whatsoever. Right? Now, it, it goes to different degrees. You know, it can go to the degree that uh, you know, God doesn't want to be involved or he can't be involved once he creates the laws of nature. Now it's all in... Man is in the driver's seat and he can do what he likes or not do. Depend, you know, and it's, it's, it's all governed down here. There's no government, there's no direction 
to what happens to man in his world outside of the world in and of itself. Right? That's essentially what this third philosophy is all about. Right? And needless to say, one doesn't have to expound on this tremendously, but um, you know, I, I think a lot of people consciously or subconsciously, either in success or in failure, share some of these philosophies. Uh, when we're successful, we definitely would like to point to ourselves in terms of it being wholly our, our success. And when it's a failure, we would certainly like to point to the stars and say that it came from the stars. So it's not something which is unusual for us to subscribe to and at the same time say, yes, I believe that there's one God in the world. It's not, it's not an unusual thing at all. Okay, we'll talk about this more when we come to to what what the Jew really believes. <clears throat> By the way, you might be thinking, if a person is successful, he shouldn't give himself any credit. I mean, you know, uh, the the slouch that sits home and doesn't do anything doesn't accomplish anything. And I went and I did and I I, I did hustle and I did make the connections and I pushed the lines. And I yelled on the phone, and I and I, conv- I persuaded, and I took the guy out to lunch, and I played golf with him. And then you're going to tell me, no, it, came, it didn't come from golf; it came from God. You know, like it, it's a little bit hard to believe. So, the um, it, just one moment. So, like, how do we relate to success? So the Chovas Halvavas says, what would be the authentic way of relating to success? Let's take the bright side of it instead of the failure side of it. The bright side of it, in terms of success, this is a very interesting thing, attitudinally, in terms of the Jewish emotions, in terms of emotions from a Jewish perspective, it's also very fascinating. Success, the Chalvas Halvavis says, should be absorbed by the person. It shouldn't be denied. A person shouldn't deny that he's successful. Uh, That's ridiculous to deny that you're successful. But the point is the following. The, poor, the, the person should say to themselves that no matter what I did in order to be successful, if God didn't want it to be accomplished, no matter what I would have done, I wouldn't have been successful. Right? So essentially, I have to thank God that after all of my toil and trouble, God granted me the pleasure of the, having a success in this particular situation. Right? That's the way the Chovas Havavis puts it. So, in other words, essentially, the, the ability to, the, the success really comes because God decided that He wanted you to be successful. You have to establish normal channels within which the, the success can be built. But the, the, so to speak, who has the veto power, who has the ability to say if it will be or won't be, it's God. So when I stand after a success and I'm delighted and I'm happy, I'm joyous at it, Right? The Jewish way of, of absorbing that, uh, that sense of success and that sense of fulfillment is that I, I put a lot of effort into this and Baruch Hashem and thank God that for all of the effort that I put in, God deemed me worthy to be successful for my efforts. That's the way that Pechavos Havavis puts it. And that's a, very, that's a very delicate balance, but it's a very interesting balance because what it is in essence saying is something which is which really permeates a lot of Jewish living and that is that a Jew doesn't live as a Jew only in terms of the things that he does and doesn't do but he also lives as a Jew in terms of a discipline or an introduction of quality into his emotions as well 
In other words, technically a person can say, listen, I did my mitzvahs today, I stayed away from the Averis, I was successful, that's, that's something that I enjoy for myself. I mean, where does God mix into that? Right? What the Chalvas Havavis is saying is that it really what Judaism is, is it really encompasses every experience of life has a way of being blended into a connection to God. It has a way of being blended into a connection, not as some kind of artificial connection, but that in fact the reality of what has happened is in direct relationship to, to, to God's involvement with me as well. That's the Jewish attitude in terms of everything that happens in our lives. Now, were this person, for instance, to have a tremendous success and not to acknowledge the fact that in his midst of his joy and his happiness, he's saying thank you to God that you, that you, met, that you, uh, that you deemed my efforts worthy of success and you blessed me with this success, if the person wouldn't go through this process of entering, uh, um, giving a quality to the happiness, giving a quality to, to the celebration of success, what would happen? What would happen is that slowly and very subconsciously what would creep into this person's subconscious is It's my strength, it's my ability. In other words, the, uh, there is a constant struggle that if we don't nurture the, the quality feelings and quality emotions and try to make a blend between ourselves and God at every stage, the, the arena doesn't stay empty. If the arena doesn't stay void. In the absence of saying thank you for, for, for considering me worthy of success, the opposite fills the arena. So the farmer that comes home, for instance, I know we don't live agriculturally, but that's one of the common examples. The farmer that comes home with thousands and thousands of bushels and doesn't say one word of thank you to God will, in, in, sub, in his subconscious, slowly be de- being de- developing a kochi v'otsam yadi. Slowly it will, be, it, will, it, will, it will begin to develop. So therefore, it's, it's an extremely important that a side of the discipline that we have in terms of what we physically do and don't do, there's also a consciousness that a Jew has in terms of the quality that he introduces or she introduces in terms of the emotions that they exp- the, the person experiences. And that's a very, that's, that's a, that's a very, um, that's a very important that's a very important quality because there's a constant tension that man would like to believe that he does it all on his own and he's totally independent. There's a constant tension of that nature and that's why it always needs that, um, that incorporation of the, the Baruch Hashem, not said by rote, but Baruch Hashem that is said with the meaning, you know, that... Now, it guarantees other things also. If you analyze it, the person doesn't become arrogant. The person is considerate in his success. He, he shares his success properly instead of becoming selfish in his success. The fact that I include God emotionally in, the, in celebrating something which is happy and something which is, has been successful for me guarantees the proper direction of how I'm going to use that success into the future as well. Besides the the the, uh, the philosophical connection, is, is it is it me kind of a thing? 
So that's the, that's the, you know that's a, an important that's a, an important point. Now I might also mention, and this is also a very important point to mention. Most of you most probably would think, okay, and we commonly think this way that this is all true in the outside world, in the world, in the, for many of us not the outside world, but the world of the physical, the world of the materialist, material acquisition, the farmer, the businessman, the stockbroker, the investor. But when it comes to being successful in mitzvahs, in successful in spiritual growth, well, that's ridiculous. That of course that's me. It's my choices. It's my it's my making the difficult decisions. It's my contending with my yetsahara. It's it's everything that I'm doing. So we even if we are, uh, so to speak, um, traditional enough to accept the concept that God deems us successful in all of the materialistic aims that we have, but we certainly have a notion that if we are successful spiritually, that's our own doing. Because, after all, there's free will, and there's Bechira, and I have a Yetzirah, you know, that there's a Yetzirah to deal with, and if in the end I come out good and the person next to me doesn't, what's the difference between him and me, except that I made the right choice, he made the wrong choice, and where I go spiritually is definitely totally up to me. And the truth of the matter is that that's also not totally up to the person. The truth of the matter is, and this is a very complicated thing, maybe we should go into it in the questions and answers, but the truth of the matter is that in terms of being successful, in terms of being successful in, in, in spiritual growth and the performance of mitzvahs and in those kinds of things, there is also over there the recognition that a person needs that if I was really, it's true, in terms of the Bechira, in terms of making the decision and the final choice to do or not to do, that's my accomplishment through my Bechira. That's, that's the area within which I work. It's upon that that the Talmud says that everything is decreed upon the man except his being righteous or not righteous. But the reality of my finishing after the choice, the reality of my being able to really get the thing done, that's also because Hashem made me worthy of fulfilling the mitzvah. Let's give an example. Let's give one example. Let's say a person goes through a struggle. Okay, He's just made a $1,000 profit on a chick-chack business deal. Okay, Meiser, which is tithing, would say that he has to give away $100, leaves him with $900. And that for some people, that there's difficulty in that. Uh, that's $100 less than I could have had if I wouldn't give tzedakah. So he goes through a struggle. Should I or shouldn't I give the tzedakah? And then he finally makes the decision that he's going to give the $100. He's going to give the $100. And then he goes and he gives the $100 to a bogus organization. And somebody pockets the money. Somebody pockets the money. Okay, now, in terms of his choice, okay, in terms of his choice to do the mitzvah, not to do the mitzvah, he went through the process, which was his process, which was his arena of choice, the tzaddik v'rasha, the righteous or the non-righteous act. He went through it and he developed for it. But the reality is, the reality is that was there a stuck accomplished here? No. The guy pocketed it. He's got millions of dollars stashed away in, in, a, uh, in an account and he's got a post office box for a bogus stucker. So the reality is that my $100 didn't go for stucker. Right? Now, 
and then uh, then you have situations where you're walking in the street, you have no intention sometimes of giving, giving stuck, or you drop a hundred dollar bill, you lose a hundred dollar bill, and a poor 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 guy comes by and finds a hundred dollar bill, doesn't have any sign, and you've given stuck it without even realizing it. So there is definitely an aspect in mitzvot that is in our control in terms of the choices that we make to give or not to give, then there's the aspect that's beyond us. If in the reality, after I make the choice, if the mitzvah is accomplished or not accomplished. All right? So now, for the choice that man makes, he has nobody else to thank except himself, that he worked... Uh, and there also, God helps the person or inspires the person, but it's primarily his work. Right? But if in the reality he accomplishes to do it, he accomplishes to do it, he has to turn to God and say, thank you, God, that after the struggle I made and the choice that I made and the decision that I came to, that it, it landed up to be something fruitful. Thank you for making me meritorious right, uh, that you saw me worthy of doing the mitzvah in its fullest sense, that it landed up in the pocket of somebody that was supposed to, you know, that was supposed to have it. There's a story that's told in this regard. There's a story that's told in this regard, which is a very interesting story, and uh, <clears throat> about um, my Rebbe's father, Rivarin Kutler Zechreina Levracha, uh, who once went to uh, um, a very wealthy person who was very, very sick. It was a question of hours. And this person had a reputation that in his lifetime he never gave tzedakah. I mean, he just did, couldn't part with his money when it came to giving tzedakah. And he was a multi-millionaire, multi-millionaire. And Ravarin went to him before, before his death, and Ravarin said, he said, give, you're, you're, you're going, and you can't take, you know, everybody knew what was going on here. And he said, you can't take it with you. And it's a schas. Before you leave this world, you can do a big mitzvah that, for one reason or another, you did not do in your lifetime. A portion, a, a part of the money, tzedakah. He said, I'm not coming for my yeshiva, any yeshiva, any a group of yeshivas, a group of tzedakahs, but give, as a, as a last good deed in this world, give some tzedakah. And the person looked at Revaran Zechreina Levracha and said, I can't. And with that, he died. I can't. And the, his son says over the story that when he left the room, Rivarans began to weep. So obviously, the more mercenary would think that he began to weep because he didn't get the money. Right? But Rivarans Zechreina Levracha said, he said, he never understood till that moment when he was in the room that it's a schus to be able to do a mitzvah. That a person has to have a certain merit to be able to be worthy of doing the mitzvah. For whatever reason, the, 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 this person's life and the lifestyle of this person was such that came a point in this person's life that he didn't even have the choice left. Could he do the mitzvah? Couldn't he do the mitzvah? Because everything that was, preceded him in terms of choices in life locked him out of an ability to do it. So when Rav Aaron came out of the room, Rav Aaron said, I never realized that it's a privilege to be able to do a mitzvah and that a person has to be meritorious of that privilege. So there is a part 
Okay, so there is a part to, um, to it, that doesn't mean to say that a person can't change, right? But at the, that particular point in the story, the person wasn't about to, to turn over his life or have the ability to do that. And that's the point. So there is a concept of that recognition, okay? On the other hand, in terms of failure, you also have the same thing. When a person either fails in material, material acquisition or a person fails in terms of doing the mitzvah to, to the fullest extent, the person can be at peace with themselves knowing that they did their best and if in the end it really didn't happen, it was because God in his wisdom felt that it shouldn't happen. Right? I did my best. You know, I did my best. And that's essentially a, a, a good part of, uh, of the, you know, of the attitude, which is exactly the opposite of this one. Okay, let's go on. If you analyze this deeply, okay, if you analyze this deeply, the Kaychi Va'aitzim Yadi philosophy, it's my strength and it's my fortitude that has given me all of this, is, is the substitution of oneself as God for God. That is essentially what it becomes. I've come to believe in myself and I come to worship myself as the creator and sustainer of my existence. I mean, that's calling a spade a spade. That's, that's what's happening. Right? And uh, unfortunately, it's, it's very, it's extremely, uh, extremely common, if not on conscious level, definitely on subconscious level in terms of American values of success. It's very, it's very common in terms of the, those values. Let's go on further. Hadas Haravias. Okay? You know, who would think that our attitudes in business have anything to do with our theological standing in terms of God's oneness? But it does. Right? And it, it all takes us back to a comment that I once made uh, weeks ago. The Chazonish's comment, what's the difference between Amuna and Bitachon? Between believing and trusting. He says, believing is when I believe the concepts for everybody else. Bitachin is when I start believing them in terms of really applying them to myself. And it's, it's, it's somewhat of a, in a very insightful remark into how we separate things between belief and reality. All right, let's go on to the fourth. Hadassah Revius, the fourth philosophy, he does goye ha'aretz. That is the philosophy of the nations of the world. And he's speaking specifically about Christianity. Ha'omrim that say, Chata Yisrael, the Jews sinned, Ein Yeshua Salai And therefore, God as a savior to the Jew is, 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 uh, is, uh, is something of the past. Now, Chas what does it mean? God forbid, Kesav Nimis Karulahem. The Jew is unwanted money. Bogus currency. Can't, can't do anything with it anymore. Now, where does this come from? Where does this, what does this have to do with uh, philosophy? So he explains. They will admit, because it doesn't cost them anything to admit, they will admit that God chose us, and then gave us the choice, that we should be either righteous people or the opposite of righteous people, and we went ahead and we made bad choices. Right? And because of this, God's hands are tied and God cannot help us anymore. Because God said, you're, it's your choice. We made the bad choice. 
So God, by the rules that he's established for his game, has locked himself out of ever being connected to us again. Right? That's, that's the gist of the philosophy. Okay? And they could even bear this out. They can even bear this out with a verse in the Torah which says, Sur, that God is a powerful rock. Yiladat Chateshi, but God gave birth to that, that then went ahead and made God weak. Because since God turned to us and said, I will only give in response to quality action, and the Jew chose not to do quality action, so now God, by definition, has locked himself into an incapacity to help the Jew anymore. And therefore God, by his own rules of the game, has locked himself out and has to leave us. And this is the acute part of it. And therefore God went and tried to get something better. With another nation. Now, because the God can't, okay, God can't help us. Now, the Orach and the length of exile, more seems to indicate lechora, seemingly alzeh. It seems to sh- prove out the point of this claim of Christianity, umafchid halavavus, and it makes people very afraid. She'enam chazakim bemunahamitas, the ones that are not really strong in the true faith and the true belief. Now let's try to develop this. This is also very interesting. I'm not very well read up on Christianity or anything like this, but let's just deal with it the way he says it. Okay? I mean, the, the, the notion that the Jew is suffering for 2,000 years and, or plus because we don't believe in something and, or we're being punished or, you know, and so on and so forth and can, don't you, because you didn't accept this, that, or the other thing, you know, that, that's, uh, that's common knowledge. This is, uh, this is one of the common arguments uh, that they use. Uh, but what the Ramesh Chaim Lutzate is essentially saying over here is that once God establishes a certain rule, right, God is then locked into that rule, and there is no reason to say that God doesn't carry out that rule to the, to the nth degree, which would automatically mean that God is completely out of the picture in terms of his choice of the Jewish people for some kind of a unique mission or some kind of a unique role. Right? Now, we'll see soon that obviously this, this is a contradiction to the concept of God's oneness. Because a, one of the concepts in God's oneness is that there is nothing that impedes God. Even the f- field rules that he himself makes. There's nothing that impedes God. This is essentially working with a concept that God can impose an impediment that then he's stuck with either if he wants or if he doesn't want to be stuck with it. So there's... The, which is, by the way, is, 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 if you just think of it for a minute, is totally illogical. Who makes the rule? God. If God makes the rule, certainly God can suspend the rule as well. But... This works with a concept that God is impeded by things that he pre-establishes. That's what this concept is essentially saying. Okay? And this runs in contradiction to the concept of God's oneness. Okay, let's go on to the fifth. Hadas HaChamishis, Hidas Peshe Yisrael. The fifth philosophy is that of the, the, the rebellious sinners of the Jewish people. 
not the ones that don't know and not the ones that are tempted to do things for for what they believe are gains. Poshe Yisrael are the people that are out lahachis, you know, with with a, a spirit of rebellion. Those that had a full recognition and understanding of God, and their intent was in what they did, to spit them in the face for the sake of being spiteful. Okay? That's the fifth group. As Amon, that's an individual, Sha'amar, that said, Klumani Osa, there is nothing that I do, Alalahachis Esbori. All I'm doing it for is because I want to, I want to irk God. I want to get God's goat. Right? God wants something. I'm going to do the exact opposite. And all that were like him. Right? And there's a verse in which Isaiah is giving, uh, a talking to a reprimand to the people and saying that what you're doing is because you have difficulty in accepting the the rulership of God. Now, what did this group of people do? Right, so there was a group, Shahayu Chayshvin, that they thought that they can actually do things against God and that they can fight with God. You know, that they can you know, they can go into combat with God. I'll fix you. You want me to do this, I'm not going to do this. You'll see in a minute. And what they essentially believe is that what they do is really going to disturb God a lot. Okay. That like a person says to, you know, I'm going to fix you for what you did and really get the, the guy going. And amongst this group of people, you have those that felt that they could work against God, that they could work against God with the powers of impurity that God established in His world. And others with their knowledge of the different forces and the different angels that God used to, to, to do things. Kemosh Amru B'Medrash as it says in the Medrash, are you Omrim Leyirmiya, Ana Makiflochomis Maya, Ana Makiflochomis Nuura. Let me explain what this is. This is stuff that's really not for us, but I'll, I'll explain what this is all about. Alright? There were people before the destruction of the temple in Yirmiya's time, in Jeremiah's time, that knew that when God does certain things, God does certain things through shluchim, through messengers. Through messengers. Now, what the concept of messengers are is a very complicated concept. Very briefly, without getting deeply into it, what it is is every every aspect of God's conduct is a reflection of His will, and His will becomes translated as it comes into this world into different physical forms that do things in this world. So, the physical form that we see is really. Uh, an end result of something that started off on a very spiritual level as God's will, and then as it came into this world, it took on a physical form of some kind of a for, an agent of, of reward or an agent of punishment, whatever it might be. Now, in this concept of these agents that are, as they filter down into this world, become agents of reward or agents of punishment, they, can, they, have, they have names that I identify them. 
They have names that identify them. We know that they're angels that are referred to as angels that bring compassion into the world. There are angels that bring justice and judgment into the world. We talk about the angel of death, right? The Malach Amavis. That's not some kind of independent demon that, you know, that wields an act. And, and acts. It's an expression of God's will that takes on a form that for us, that becomes an individual that's bringing this into the world. But in, ac in actuality, it's just like a symbolization or a personification of God's will as it comes into this world. In any case, these people were so knowledgeable in Kabbalah and so knowledgeable in mysticism that they knew exactly which names and which verses of, uh, would be able to generate the forces of fire in the world that would bring the destruction of Jerusalem and the names, the different names and things that would bring the, that energy into this world which was the energy of water. So what they thought was quite simply that though God was now working with a, of bringing fire to Jerusalem and, and, and burning down the city of Jerusalem because they weren't worthy of Jerusalem or the temple anymore, they figured that they had a perfect way. They'll go into the way God works things and that they will say the different verses and use the different powers that they knew in order to surround the city of Jerusalem with water. And in that way, this Jerusalem would never be able to be burned down to the ground. To us, this sounds utterly ridiculous. All right? Now, but this is what they did. Now, wh where does this notion come from? What the, what this notion comes from the fact that the person believes that he's an unequal basis and he can be a combatant with God and that God also has to come on to different forms in order to get his things accomplished and if I can steal his tools from him or use opposite tools that I can fight against him okay now we laugh at this we laugh at this okay but unfortunately throughout Jewish history there were Jews unfortunately they're Jews no matter what they did but they were Jews that felt that they could stand up in an offensive against God. There were Jews in all generations that believed that. What possessed them to believe that is a separate issue. But there were Jews that, you'll excuse me, were possessed with a notion that they can fight. God has one thing planned and we have another thing planned and we're balabatim or we're equals or equal enough to be able to thwart God's plans. Now, it's a very interesting thing. What did God do in this situation? What did God do in this situation? Well, technically speaking, what God could have done, what God could have simply done in this situation is said, listen, there's no angel of fire, no angel of water that takes orders from Shmos. They take their orders, so to speak, from me. So they can't function anyway without me. But that's not what God did. God did something else. The, the Medrash tells us that what God did is God switched the names of the angels. <laughs> so that when they went out and they called out the names and the verses of the angels that they believed would be thwarting God's plan, they were actually bringing their own destruction. This is what the Medrash says. And the point of this being, the point of this being to show the utter emptiness and the utter futility of their belief that they could take God's own world and God's own powers and fight against God. And to bring across that point, point 
they came to realize that everything that they were doing was in fact bringing it upon them as opposed to the exact opposite. All right. These are the, the five philosophies. Now, uh, again, we're not learning five philosophies for the sake of learning false philosophies. Now we're going to see how each one of these five philosophies, as we've learned them, is really in contradiction to what we really mean when we talk about God's oneness. V'amnam. But, however, Hamamin b'yichud, a person that really believes in God's oneness, umaven inyanay, and really understands what are the implications, what are the ramifications of believing in God's oneness, sarich shiyamin, he needs to believe what is included under the definition of God's oneness, shakarish baruchu echad, that God is one, Yachid, he's an individual in that oneness, Umayuchad, and there is nobody else like him. Sha'inlay, that he doesn't have Moneya Uma'akev, anybody that can hold him back or check his speed. Ma'akev means to hold him back completely. Klau, at all. Because, why? What does this have to do with God's oneness? Because if I can identify anything, a force, a power, a law, an individual, a God, anything that can stand in God's way, so in essence what we are then saying about God is that God does not stand above all. And that God is not ultimately singular in all of his features because there is another force that he has to reckon with he doesn't have total freedom there's something else that can hold back which automatically means that there's something else that has a measure of control God's oneness means that there's virtually nothing that can stand in God's way in terms of his existence or his control or direction to things so the notion that there is anything else that can hold back or slow the speed or stand in the way is a contradiction to what we mean when we <coughs> oh, wonderful you know what <coughs> testing 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 okay okay that's the first thing Bishum Panim or Bishum Tzad. And this is in all ways, in every way, from no angle. Elohu Levadei Moishel Bakayl. God is the ruler all in everything by himself. Loi Mavayir, there is no question, Shein Rishus Negde Chas Vishalom. There's no question that there is no other domain. That uh, that occupies the same significance as him, opposite him. This is referring to the philosophy of an equal opposite God. He says to say that there is an equal force which is an opposite, which represents the equal opposite force to God. Lomava, there's no question about that. That that's utter nonsense. That there is no equal domain opposite him. Elohu the Jewish belief is that God creates, yes, the good and the evil. He creates both. Now, creating evil is a whole discussion, which Lazada is going to get into a very involved and deep discussion. What does it mean to create evil? 
but God is not embarrassed. Okay? And God says, I'm responsible for it all. I'm responsible for it all. Everything comes from me. I'll take it on my shoulders. As it says in Isaiah, I create light, darkness, peace, and evil. I do it all. Now, there is a distinction which we're not going to get into. There's a distinction between Yotzer and Bore. Right? There is a distinction between the word Yotzer and Bore, which we very loosely think that they both mean the same thing, to create. I create Tov and I create Ra. There is a distinction between the two, which we're not going to get into now. But God unequivocally says, it's all from me. Don't blame it on anybody else. It comes from me. Okay? Ani Hashem Oseh Kol Eila. I do it all. Okay? So this is the refutation of which belief? The second of the five beliefs. In other words, in terms of Jewish belief, when we say that God is one, it means that he's responsible for everything. If there's Ra in the world, that's also from him. If it comes from someone else, then God's not one because there are things in the world that don't come from him. There's another source. Another source means that he's not Echad. He's not one. Okay? So that's the refutation in terms of what we mean with God's oneness against that. Now, going further, Shein Acher Tachtav Shiyelay Shlita Ba'olam there is no other force underneath God that has a control in this world. There are no secondary forces that God grants independent function to. Okay? I'm, I'm giving you executive right and power and now go do whatever you want to do, that kind of a thing. There is no such notion. This is against the, this is in contradiction to, or in refutation of which? Of the first of the five philosophies. That there are, there are all kinds of forces and we have to worship them as cabinet members of God's government. Right? There ain't no such thing. Right? It's a single, it's a single God rule. There is no, there is no, you know, there's no hierarchy of power and control in the, in the world. Right? That's number two. Below Ode. And not only this, and God by himself is the one that is totally involved in an individual way in every single situation in a person's life. Right? Now this obviously is in the refutation of all of those concepts of harnessing the laws of nature and, you know, or it's all in the stars and it has nothing to do with right and wrong, which is an exclusion of, of God's involvement in my life. There is nothing that is created or born into this world except if there was a prior will on God's part for it to be there. And it comes from God's hand. There is no such word as coincidence or random or circum- circumstance. Velo beteva, there ain't no nature, as if one wants to see it as an independent thing, velo bemazel. And there's no concept of mazel being some kind of governing force in what happens to a person's life. Alright? God is the judge, and what happens to a person is the result of God being a shofet, God being a judge. God decrees everything that happens in all worlds till the very all of the different levels it's not that God bothers with human beings but not with animals with animals and not with plants or things like that God's involved in everything God is in all 
parts of creation. Okay? And this is in the, in, in refutation, in a statement of refutation of the third of the five false philosophies. Right? Now this, this is directly in contradiction to that. That there is nothing that governs. Okay? There is nothing that governs in the world. Now, and part of the belief in God's oneness is that there is nothing that forces God. Right? There's not, you can't say you'll force God into a certain situation. And all of the laws that God established have their function and their power in their existence because there's God's will that's making them exist. In other words, they don't have inherent, uh, inherent power of existence. So any law that God establishes and it puts into the world, including the most justified laws, is because it's God's will. And at any moment in time, it's there because it's God's will for it to be there. Okay, now, and God is not compelled by any of them. In other words, there aren't certain things that God does that he's stuck with. Okay, there is no such concept. When God wants to tie himself to man and say, I'm not going to do anything except in response to man, God can do that. As it says in our sages, that everything it depends upon our actions. And when God wants, God says, I couldn't care less what, what is going on. Right? And God says, I feel like doing good now, or I want to do something in spite of what man has done, and God has the freedom to do that as well. Right, the question is, why does God do that when he does it? But the ability for God to do that is, 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 is from a Jewish standpoint, is, is non-contestable. And because philosophically, the notion that once God establishes a rule, he's forced to live by it, is, is a contradiction to our concept of what God is. He's not forced. He might not want to change the rule, or you'll have to argue why should he change the rule. Or, or, you know, that needs discussion. But to say that he's forced into the situation and he can change the rule, that would be opposite of the concept of God's oneness. Let me just finish up the, the, the verse that he brings as a proof to this. And this is what's meant when he tells Moshe, Moses, that sometimes God can display charm or uh, a sense of connection to a person even if in the ways that we understand justice and God's response to man's actions it wouldn't be warranted. Right? There is a conduct where God does because he wants to do. Okay? Now, what that means co- completely and when does that function is a... Is a, is a is a whole chapter in this book. When does that function? That, that kind of conduct where God says, I couldn't care less about reward and punishment. Or I don't, I, I don't, I don't, uh, stay within the confines of reward and punishment and I function in other ways. Alright? This is a whole discussion. But the ability to do this is God's ability. It's His freedom to do that. And this is the attitude that Job talks about. Because we live with the attitude that everything that we do causes big things. Uh, if we do a mitzvah, we're giving God power because the, the, what God wants to be done with his world gets done. So people realize God more. Symbolically, God is getting stronger. In the, 
in the perceptions of man. And vice versa, when we do things which are negative, so God can't reveal himself, so the concept of God is, is weaker in the world, so we talk about a weaker God. Right? But on the other hand, as much as we say this statement, there is another statement which Job talks about. And Job says, Im There is, though, another part to the concept, which is important to know, that no matter what we do, you ain't chipping away anything from Hashem. You can't be taking anything away from Hashem. In the definition of who God really is, you're not doing anything to God. What are you taking? God was here before you. He's going to be here after you. At the Nishgedarft, He didn't need you. He, his existence was whole and complete without you. And anything that you can do can't, so to speak, infiltrate and undermine His existence. Okay? That's, that's the point that he's saying here. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care Okay, but that's a human term, right? But in the sense of undermining God's existence or taking away or diminishing from God by virtue of what I do, that's not really true. And this is what Job is saying. The essence is that we don't touch anything. Okay? Now, and there will be a period of time upon which it says, and therefore the prophet speaks about a period of time where God says that God is going to look at his people and God is going to say that my operation with you is because I want you, because I love you and irrespective if, if, if it works out with the exact uh, formulas of reward and punishment I don't ever want to give you up right? that's, that, that's, that's ironclad I don't want to give you up if, if, if I cannot give you up within the confines of reward and punishment, I definitely try it that way. If it doesn't work that way, I will guarantee in other ways that you will never be able to, to be divorced from the situation. For me, for me, I do this to, in order to guarantee that result. And as the Prophet himself says, it is me, it is me that has the ability to get rid of the, the nonsense in your life that threatens our relationship. I will wash away or move away the sins of the, this earth on that day in, in one motion. And this is our consolation in our situation. That in the rea- after everything is said and done, the sum total of the future of the Jew lies in God's abiding love for His people, not in the merit of our actions. Right? And God's not going to wait around forever and ever for our merits. Right? Or that He would switch us for somebody else because of what's deficient in us. Now this needs a lot of interpretation which I'm not going to get into. Next week I'll get into this in, in great length. What is this concept? It sounds very partial. It sounds very biased. What is it? Right? It sounds very, it sounds a little bit lopsided and certainly in terms of justice. But this is the concept, okay? Now, and he alludes to the answer. God made a promise and a commitment to our forefathers and the covenant that he made with our forefathers and even if when the time comes 
there is no merit to the Jewish people to merit that that relationship. When the time, the destined time comes for what God wants the world to realize, a day that is hidden in God's heart, God will definitely come to our rescue, which means that He will put us through a process which will bring us back to Him. Okay? Because God is, after everything is said and done, a total master. Right? And he can do that if he so desires to do it and when he elects to do it in that fashion. And this is in contradiction of the fourth of in, in contradiction of the fourth of the of the philosophies, the one that was expressed before in terms of Christianity. <coughs> Okay, let's go on just a little bit more and then I'll open up for questions. And what we have to believe, in addition to all of this, is similar to what I've just mentioned. Being that God is never forced to do anything. What did we say a moment ago? That God can never be forced into something that he doesn't want to do. If God can't be forced into something, nobody can fight against him either, because fighting against him means forcing him uh, into a situation. And even if a person has the wisdom and the connections of using the forces that God himself employs in his world, because after everything is said and done, who made them? God made them. So the, the notion that a person can take them and then use them against the creator that made them is utterly ridiculous. Right? And the reason why it's utterly ridiculous is because every moment that the thing is functioning, see, it's not like you build a building and then you walk away from it and you're not connected to it. Everything in creation is constantly nourished by the energy of God from moment to moment. So to assume that you can take it and use it against God is a contradiction. Right? I'll tell you in a minute a ramification of this concept, a very, a very, uh, um, one that's very useful in life. And God can always change them at, at, uh, when He so desires to do. And when we say, it means that even for the kshafim, the, the black magic which we spoke about that He created, it doesn't mean that it can function opposite of God. When God wants, God can say, I don't want it to function now. Finished. Right? And it's as if it never existed. And not like those fools thought that a person can use the vessels of God against God. And they found out that they were full of baloney. Now he's referring to what I told you before, that God switched the names. And a person can't help himself or do anything because God is the master of all things and there is no other. And this is uh, opposite the fifth philosophy of the Poshe Yisrael. Now let me just tell you an interesting application of this thing. You know, who's going to go, who, who of us 
thinks that we can take God's energies and work them against God. We don't really think like that. Extreme examples where people are possessed in spiteful ways. But there is one place where this where this concept is very useful in our lives. Right? And let me give you the let me give you the picture. The time of Rav Moshe Kadivera, who is a big Makubal, is a big Kabbalist, gives it to us in the following way. He wrote a book that the first part of the book is called Tamadvara, the book. Um, talks about the fact that man is created in the image of God. That's the format of the book. In the image of God. And therefore we have, by virtue of how we were created in the image of God, the ability to emulate God's attributes because God's attributes are our very essence. In other words, it's not some external feature, and we it's monkey sees, monkey does, but it is in essence a part of us. Mm-hmm. This is what, and essentially what the Taimidvara then goes on to say is that if a person doesn't emulate God's, God's traits, not only is he not emulating God's traits, but he's in contradiction to who he himself is, because it's in con- contradiction to his own image. The way he says it is, is machsiv es He's falsifying his image because his image is an image that personifies God's attributes and has the potential of God's attributes. So what does he then go ahead and do? He goes through 13 principal attributes of God and he takes those 13 attributes and says, well, if these are attributes of God and you're created in the image of God, you have the ability to emulate those things because you have that common denominator with God. So in the discussion, it's a, it's a phenomenal thing. I started it in Los Angeles. I got through about the first eight of them. And I wasn't able to finish it. But it's, uh, the, the, what I did is on tape. Is, um, so he talks about, the fi- he talks about a, an interesting thing. He says like this. He talks about savlanus, tolerance. about tolerance. And he says there is no God... There is no nothing that's living in this world that is as tolerant and that swallows, so to speak, the insult and injury like God. In our terms of insult and injury, God doesn't have any insult or injury. Why? So he says the following thing. Think for a moment. You get up in the morning and you have the strength of moving your arm back and forth. That strength is a manifestation of God's will that you should be able to have that ability from moment to moment. It's not that he created you once and now you're an independent being, but every moment that you can move your hand is because God is nurturing, by virtue of his will, your ability to be able to move that way. So let's say, he says, for a moment, right, that you get up in the morning and you have this ability and you go over to somebody and you smack the guy in the face, which is an avera, which is, is, is something wrong to do. Now think for a moment. What gave you the ability to do that? It was God's will that you should have that koach to do it that gave you the ability to do it. Now, technically, God can say, he says, what kind of a business is this? I gave him the strength to do something, but if he's going to elect to use the strength in a way that's directly opposite of me, I mean, that's a chutzpah. I mean, I gave him this, and he's going with it exactly against me. You know, it's like somebody gives you uh, $10,000 to start a business. Okay, let's give a marshal. Let's give an example. I give you $10,000 to start a business, and you open up a business in a way that you try to destroy the guy that gave you the $10,000 to start the business. Now, what is the guy that gave you the $10,000 going to think about you? 
He's going to rub you out at the first mo- at the first chance that he gets, right? Because I should sustain, uh, I should support that which is against myself. That's ridiculous. But what is God's hanhaga? God gives the person time. God gives the person space. God gives the person freedom to act. And God doesn't instantly say that this is a chutzpah, this is a hazin, and, and what kind of a business is this, and for this I didn't give it to him, so I'm going to take it away. So there is a measure of savlanis which God displays with man, which is phenomenal. Because every move that I do, which is a wrong move, where did I get the energy to do that wrong move against God? God gave me the energy to, to do the thing that God doesn't want me to do. So there's a display there of, of time and space and patience and tolerance that's phenomenal. So the Talmud Virus says that we should apply that in some, to, some, to the extent that it's humanly possible. We should try to apply that to ourselves also. I mean, that's an example that the Talmud Virus says. It's a very lofty and a very difficult thing to do. But it's, uh, and, and it needs a lot of guidelines. It's not so simple. It doesn't mean that you're supposed to lie down and let somebody step all over you. It doesn't mean that either. So it needs an eye in, in the tape. To, you know, for further reference, look in the tape for, for the guidelines. But uh, that's a good way of selling tapes, isn't it? Uh, but this would be an example of this concept. This would be an example of this concept. When we talk about the fact that nobody can, can uh, you know, the recognition of the fact that everything comes from God, right? Uh, we're not tempted to take it against God. But the next time that we think of doing something that's, that's not, not what God asked us to do or directly in contradiction to it, a person should really have a certain sense of being uncomfortable with it. Because how do I do... How do I how do I misuse what God gave me? Do you follow what I'm saying? I'm I'm using it in a positive way. This is the example of the negative, where the person says, "Now that I know how God functions, and now that I know how God does things, I'm going to do with those things opposite." The truth of the matter is that the recognition that all of this comes from God can be a deterrent when a person is contemplating doing something that's not right. Like, how can't I be embarrassed of myself? I mean, if my, if my parent would give me a dollar to go to the store and buy a dozen eggs and I come home with a bag of pretzels or, or something like that, I would be embarrassed of that. I mean, any normal person would be embarrassed of using it for something else. How am I not embarrassed to use that which I was given in, in a way that's exactly the opposite of, of what I was told to do with it? So that's, that's something that... Uh, and this is one of the things that he says. That's one of the... Um, examples of that kind of a thing. Okay, I said enough for one day. Um, I'll take questions. I'm sure there are questions. You had some questions. Uh, one question. Um, we, we talked earlier about um, how God sets the rules and, and um, uh, He can change them at any time and at will. Um, how does that apply to promises uh, that God uh, has made or uh, in, in terms of fulfilling them, uh, or is he bound by them, for instance, uh, um, uh, will the Mashiach come, or 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 or, 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 or could he change his mind? All right, let's let, let's let's hold off on the concept of Mashiach for a moment. Let's just talk about promises as promises, okay? The the issue of God's promising is. Um, is a very complicated issue. The Gemara deals with it. 
The Talmud deals with it at the beginning of Brachos, relatively in the beginning of the tractate of Brachos. And essentially, what the Talmud says, um, the Talmud says a number of things. First of all, the Talmud says that a prophecy or a promise that is made, which is something which is lera'a, right, which is something ba- about something bad that's going to happen, can always change. Okay, and essentially, when we understand that concept of change. It's not that the, that God's will changes, it's that the condition changes that preempts uh, what God said. Do, do you follow what I'm saying? In other words, there is a certain condition, lara, which is a bad thing, okay? And because it was determined that this situation deserves this situation, but man can change it. Not the decree, but change himself, and therefore the decree is not applicable to that situation. Right? And that's why the whole concept of tshuva, or where God said upon Nineveh that Nineveh would be destroyed. You're, you know the story with Yonah, okay? And uh, and it was a prophecy. And then in the end, Nineveh wasn't Nehefeches. It wasn't it wasn't destroyed, okay? And without the kunst that Nehefeches doesn't mean destroyed, but it means a change, a turn of a new leaf. But the reality is because so the Gemara says that's the first thing. it could always change, okay? Latova. Okay, Latova, okay, for good. The Gemara says that it can it cannot change. In other words, a promise that's made Latova cannot be changed. But the Gemara does make a distinction between a Yachid and a Rabin, between a single individual and a promise that's made to a whole to a whole congregation of people. Right? In other words, a promise or a commitment that's made to a whole congregation, to a Klal Yisrael, the Gemara says, is, is a definition of something that was, is within God's plan. And God has a commitment. And if we're not worthy for it, then God does that which will make us worthy for it. A commitment that's made to a yachid, a person can fall out of being worthy to it. Right? So the Gemara makes a distinction between the yachid and the rabbin. Other distinctions there are where the promise is made with conditions, obviously. Right? if a promise is made with a condition as well. That's why, for instance, when you talk about Jacob, where God promises Jacob that everything's going to be well, and then Asaph comes and is about to attack, so Yaakov is worried. Why is Yaakov worried? He had a promise. So Yaakov knew that he's a yachid, he's an individual, and as an individual, if he loses merit, the promise is not applicable, because the understanding of the promise to begin with is is if, if he's worthy of it. When the time comes, if he's worthy of it. But the Gemara does say, but Rabin, that pr- kind of a promise that's made to a, a Rabin is a statement that's a, a statement of, of ultimate plan, a master plan, the universal plan. And those statements that are made for a Rabin are they never go back, they never change. That's essentially what the Gemara says. There's a little, you know, the variations. Maimonides learns it a little bit differently, but that's the, you know, the uh, that's the line, if you want to call it that. That's the that's the accepted uh, shita in, in promises. Promises, you know, you wonder. So if it's it all depends on merit. So what's the concept of promise altogether? In other words, let's let's take the yachid. Okay, let's take the individual. I make a promise, but you got to be worthy. And if you're not worthy. So then a person can think to themselves, so then what's the whole promise worth? If I'm worthy, I'll get it anyway. And if I'm not worthy, I'm not going to get it in spite of the promise. So what, what, what does promise mean? Right? 
there are, there, are, there are different implications to the concept of promise. Promise means that there's a, that there's a connection. That there's a connection to the person, which is an influence on the person. Do you, do you, do you follow what I'm saying? Which, which is an inspiration to the person, which makes the person different because of the promise that's to the person. So a promise is not just a definition of the execution of an exercise. It's, it's a coming together between between the parties and the coming together between the parties is something that that has you know it has its ramifications it has its implications in the development of the person you know for instance god uh, god promises us that we're going to do tshuva the promise itself that we are going to do tshuva bears down upon us and inspires us on subconscious levels to move in that direction so there, you know, there are other concepts in what haftacha is. It's not merely, you know, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm telling it to you beforehand with the word promise in front of it. Next, yes. So a person puts his faith in something like S. Modern psychology, with all the different variations. You know, because we're in California, you probably know someone I can't think of. Is that one of those false philosophies that we're really relying on man? Yeah, you know which one that falls into? You try to think which one it would fall into. Right, falls into that third one. That's why when people ask me, is there any basis for astrology and all of those things, there is a basis for astrology. There is, there is a certain basis for astrology. Is our astrology today the authentic astrology? That's a separate discussion. But there is a basis for astrology. But I very, I discourage getting at all involved in that question because no matter what astrology is but that's not the last word for what happens to a person the last word for what happens to a person in the long and the short is what's for the person's uh, ultimate benefit in the long or short run which we, we can't necessarily see I mean the example that I gave I believe once was that Iaparo saw that there was a star that signified blood that was out in the desert, which meant that there would be a bloody situation for the Jew in the desert, which power obviously defined that they were going to be slaughtered out in a bloodbath in the desert, which in fact was the performance of Pesach and Mila, the performance of the Paschal Lamb and circumcision. And the way the commentaries say it was that by virtue of those mitzvot, they deserved to be saved from Egypt and deserved to be saved from that bloodbath. So in other words, the, there are forces that would would play upon a person, but they're not compelling forces. You know, so whatever indication a person might have from from astrology about anything doesn't mean anything in the final result because that's not the ultimate decider of what's going to happen to the person. Right? It's very much personified at the beginning of the Jewish people's birth. Where God says, "Say me, it's Tagninas Shelcha." Where God says, "Go out and look at the stars," and He promises some children, which in the astrology, the, the astrology said that He was born in a time that He couldn't have children. The basis of the Jewish people is outside of the astro- uh, the the uh, astrology um, the astrology prediction. The whole beginning of Klal Yisrael, the roots of Klal Yisrael, is as outside of that. And never is the is the ultimate dictator of what happens to the person. Okay, I just want to follow up on that. If somebody who otherwise might do shul might become religious, 
to solve their problems, instead turns to modern psychology or asks the one of those kind of philosophies, why does God allow this person to get out of their pain and get out of their suffering that way when that keeps the person from coming to God? You know, in other words, why does God allow this person to, to benefit from these other forces which might, in fact, pull the person away from God? Uh, why does God make a Yetzirah in the world? What? Are they part of the Yetzirah or are they not? Well, I wouldn't say it so loosely, but like everything else, to do tshuva is also uh, a choice. And it's also a challenge of, of a person that a person has. And it, it, the challenge takes many different faces. This is one of the faces. You know, there are a lot of things that happen in the history of, of, of an individual or in the history of humanity as a whole that also present tremendous options for tshuva. The person has the ability to look at them and take them seriously and define them seriously to move closer to God or to totally mistranslate them either by psychology or by any other sophisticated sociological, political, psychological or any other way that he has. You know, it's, it, it, it's open territory and that's all part of the, the challenges that a person has. Please don't carry on. To continue. Okay. Uh, the, uh, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, the only two promises I could think of that God makes to an individual are by the mitzvahs of, so that you should have a long life. Right? Do keep it of, and the, the bird thing, so that you should have a long life. Right? What other, my question is, what other individual We are there. Sorry? Individual promises? I gave you the pro the individual promise to Yaakov. That's an individual promise. Well, but to each Jew, I mean, to each and every Jew, what other individual promises are, are in the Torah? And part two is, what is the collective promise that he gives us? Collective promises that he gives us are the, are the promises, as he pointed out, in terms of in terms of Mashiach, in terms of us going back to Eretz Yisrael, in terms of peace coming to the world, in terms of the awareness of God um, permeating all of mankind eventually, these are collective promises that are made. The promises that were made to Abraham, which were promises, this, the, the, one of the promises, collective promises, the one that he discusses, the promise of um, that he'll never change us with another nation which is a promise which is, is stated very clearly in the verses of the most severe punishment in the Torah that even when the Jew is exposed to the worst forms uh, of exile and holocaust I promise you that it will, there will never be the, the dis there's a promise of the eternity of a Jew those are those are promises that are made uh, collectively. I mean, historically, promises were made to individuals. I mean, God doesn't come to individuals today and give them promises which are unique to them. Those, uh, you know. But it doesn't seem like there are many individual guarantees or promises, or you know, in in, in Torah. You know what he actually says to this. The, the, uh, yeah, in a certain sense, it is. It def it definitely is. 
Yeah, and it definitely is. There's, um, I mean, individual promises. Let's just give some more examples of them. Individual promises. Uh, royalty will never leave the house of David is a promise which is um, directed on an individualistic level. The promise uh, of the gift of kahuna, of priesthood to, to the Kohanim, is an individualistic promise which, you know, which exists even today. Um, Those are situations of unique. See, the, the, when we talk about promises, and it's true that reward and punishment is a pro promise, but it's not used in the classical sense of promise. When we talk about promise, we're talking about um, special protection, special handling, you know, those kinds of uh, of situations. Yeah. You say astrology has no part. Yet when you talk to, I mean, determining things, yet today among some people, when they're talking about things, they say, well, that, that's the model. I mean, it's a very, you know, you're saying on one hand it doesn't, that alone doesn't determine, you know, not finally determinant, but yet among some people, when they're talking about things or everyday discussions, the idea of model, they, they say, well, that's just model. Well, it's like it's a, it's a, it's a, it seems that when it's used among the average Trump person, it seems like it is a very... All right, let me tell you in what sense it's, it's, it's not inappropriate. Let me tell you in what sense it's not inappropriate. Um, there, are, uh, there are certain things that are predetermined for a person, Right? What he does in those situations, and henceforth, what God's response will be to the person, uh, is 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 up to the person. For instance, let's say God determines that a person is never going to get over the thirty thousand mark level in the first twenty years of his life. Let's say, let's say as an example, okay. So his mazel is that he's not going to get over thirty thousand, which is a tantamount to saying that it was beshert upon him that he won't make over. It's it. it in other words, it's very akin to the word bashert, okay? Uh, but beyond that, but okay, now that he doesn't make over 30,000, so now he decides that he's going to call up Mr. Vosky and make the extra money in a different way, which is a bad choice, and then God punishes him, and then there's a whole scenario back and forth between God and man that's obviously, that has nothing to do with mazel. That has to do with what he did with his the mazel. So in the sense of of those things which we can identify that are not the result of his choices, but that are, are a manifestation of the predetermined conditions that God wants the person to live within, the word mazel is, is, is not an inappropriate word, akin with the concept of bashert. But to, to take things that happen to a person, let's say a person suffers terribly, and let's say a person would have a view into heaven and know that this person is suffering because he did something that he needs he needs to suffer for. You now, for the for another person to say, well, that's his mazel. Uh, who are you to say that it's his mazel? You don't know if it's his mazel or if it's God's response to something that he did and that was within his field of choice. And God's now responding to it. So, in that sense, you have to be careful in in how to use the word mazel. Not everything that happens to a person is mazel. Do you follow what I'm saying? 
those things which we can, you know, if a person only grows to five foot ten, okay, and he did everything to grow to six feet and he only grew to five ten, then you can say that's his mazel. His mazel was that he should only be five ten, right? But uh, usually things that happen to a person, you have to be much more careful and just, you know, well, that's his mazel. Some of the uh, verses quoted are from uh, things that we say in uh, Yom Kippur davening. It's interesting that there's at least three or four of them that are quotes from that. And For example? Okay. Right. Um, it just makes me think in terms of what some of the questions that were asked about uh, decrees that are made. And on Yom Kippur, we, uh, Australian Yom Kippur, we ask for the evil decree to be reversed, hopefully. And what made me, uh, what, I, what I thought of is, how does that uh, tie in with the idea of Scharva Onesh? Is not Scharva Onesh something we get, good or bad, depending on things that we've done before? Then why on your Yom Kippur are we praying about reversing an evil decree that has been decreed to happen to us in the future, that's prejudged, isn't it? Hi. Right, let Let me clear. Uh, let me clarify what what that particular when we say uh, tear up. He's um, Joel is referring to a specific thing. Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King, Krao Exardinenu. Tear up the evil part of the decree. Right now. Um, there's another fundamental question that uh, has to be asked as well. Um, how do we call it roa? Are we with attaching a value to something that God's doing? God, you just made a decree against me. That was a bad decree. In that sense, we're attaching a value. I mean, the Jew believes that what God decrees upon him is ultimately for his good. Mm-hmm. So it's not roa. I mean, the, it might not be pleasant, but it's not Roeg Zardinenu, which is another part of the question, essentially. Now, let's start from the beginning. There's no question that when we talk about Roa, when we talk about Zardinenu, the decree that has been judged upon us, it is a Scarva Onish response. It has nothing to do with Mazel and the predetermined circumstances. Zardin is something that went through a justice process predetermined things that are determined at the moment of conception, that's not a justice process. That's the process that goes into God's master plan of what has to be accomplished with the potentials that are available at this point in history. It has nothing to do with justice. Xardinenu is a decree that has been ju- judged through the reward-punishment system. All right? Now, <clears throat> when we talk about Roa Xardinenu, what we're saying is the following. Right? What we're saying is the following. Um, when God does have to deal with us in ways which are quote-unquote harsh as good as they are and as justified as they are the Jew can make a a change in his position before God that will still need that the person will still need a modification but it doesn't have to be as severe or it doesn't have to take the same form. The marshal, the example that the Dubna Magid gives is of the king uh, that makes a decree that anybody that does such and such 
should be stoned. Right? And then it comes out that his own son does it. Right? So now he's in a pickle because he made a decree. You know, he made a decree that such and such is the punishment, and uh, the son cha- You know, and but it's his son. So what does he do? So essentially, what he does is in taking instead of taking large boulders, he may, takes it into he p- puts it into many different thousands of different pieces. The child will go through a lot of disgrace of having himself pelted with these things, but the 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 impact of one thing coming down and destroying a person completely is, is not there. So the dubna 